Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chad Vinson. I'm the uh, community group pastor. And uh, I was reminded this week that uh, through a conversation, I'm not from Mississippi and I'm not from Alabama, but I'm from North Carolina. So if you understand the southern twain, you get that. So you folks from the, the region of the northern part we love, if you have trouble this morning understanding me, Godspeed. <laughs> but I, I will try to be articulate. And, uh, but you know the old saying, you take the kid out of small town, but how's it go? <laughs> you can take the kid, the boy out of small town, but you can't take this boy, the small town out of the boy. There it is. It came to me. Well, just because I'm a southerner doesn't mean that I don't like a little Rocky Balboa. And he's from Philadelphia. So uh, growing up, uh, they were my favorite movies. Even though you're probably thinking Rocky, terrible acting, number one. Number two, the fight scenes. Even they're swinging and hitting each other, they're missing by a mile. But you got to love Rock. Yo, Adrian! And everything that comes along with Rocky, right? Because he wasn't the most talented guy. And he wasn't the quickest in the ring. And he didn't have the hardest punch. Uh, but, old, but old Rock, he had heart. And uh, Rocky's motto in life was, it's not about hard you hit. It's about as hard as you get hit and keep on moving forward. It's not about as hard as you hit. It's about as hard as you get hit and keep on moving forward. See, Rocky wanted something. He was pursuing something. He was looking for something. And for Rock, the ring was his refuge. That was the place where he felt satisfied. That's the place where he felt contentment. That's the place where he felt well-being. That's the place he found rest was in the ring. And then Rocky III happens. And Rocky beats Apollo Creed. And he's now the heavyweight champion of the world. And he's got all the material things he wants at his dispense. He's got the big house. He's got the nice cars. And he's got the belt, the heavyweight champion of the world. But something's gradually happened to Rocky. And Mr. T shows him what's about to happen to him. Mr. T is played by Clubber Lane. And he looks into the reporter. The reporter says, Mr. T, how do you predict this fight, Clubber? What's the fight going to be like? And Mr. T says one word, pain. Because you know Mr. T, he's always, I pity the fool. So Mr. T says one word, it's, mad, it's pain. Rocky's manager, Mickey, tries to warn him with these profound words from Mickey. Listen, listen closely. Don't miss this. This is important. Well, Rock... Let's put it this way. Now, three years ago, you was tough. You was nasty. You had an iron fist jaw. But something happened to you, Rock. The worst thing that all happened to you, you got civilized. You lost your hunger. You ain't been hungry in years. That's Mickey. See, what became the refuge for Rock in the ring? He lost it. The contentment he found, the peace, the satisfaction, the completeness, the well-being. That was his refuge. He had it. He achieved it. And then he lost it. And Mr. T showed him how he lost it 
by bringing the pain to his life. See, you and I can relate to Rocky. Because as you sit here in these chairs today, you're looking for something. You're pursuing something. See, you're hungry for something. And the Bible calls that shalom. The Bible calls that peace. Shalom. See, we all have this God shape or shalom shape in our hearts that nothing can fill it. No matter what we try to throw in there, nothing can fill it but God himself. Shalom himself. But we keep running to broken places with broken ideas and the broken people to give us shalom. See, Adam and Eve had it in the garden. They had shalom. They had completeness. They had oneness. They had rest. But since the garden, since we've been exiled from the garden, you and I are on this rise and fall of shalom. What makes peace so difficult is that we can't earn it by our hard work. We can't purchase it by the money we make. And we can't deserve it by our behavior. You see, shalom, biblically speaking, is truly a gift. It's a gift to you and I. And so this morning, my question is, where are you with shalom? Have you, have you had it? Have you experienced it? Or are you like me, where some days you experience it, and then you just lose it? Some minutes you get it, and other minutes it's gone. Some days feel peaceful, feel shalom, feel close to God, oneness, connection. And then other days, it's gone. See, thankfully in our Bible, God understood our humanity. He understood our struggle of shalom. And this morning, let's look at Isaiah 38. Turn there with me. Isaiah 38, he's going to talk about King Hezekiah's pursuit of something, looking for something, trying to find something desperately. And it's shalom. The cycle of shalom goes piety, prosperity, pride, pain, and back to peace. And that's a cycle. Think of it like a cycle. And that's kind of what we're on in life. As broken, fallen people, we're on the cycle. So as you turn there to chapter 38 of Isaiah, let me just give you some context. Last week, Jeff talked about um, the Assyrians pressing in hard to Judah. King Hezekiah stands up and he weeps. He tears his, his clothes off. He's mourning for God to save his people from destruction. The Assyrians are coming. They're not relenting. They're taunting. They're boasting. They're arrogant. They're cocky. And Ezekiel falls on his face before the Lord and says, God, if you don't do anything, please save my people. And God graciously answers and kills 185,000 Assyrians. The first trip I said 185 Assyrians, but 185 is the correct amount. So it's a large amount of people. 185,000. So in chapters 38 and 39, what's going to happen is we're going to flash back. And what God so graciously is going to do through the prophet Isaiah is he's going to give us a behind-the-scenes view of Hezekiah. 
He's going to give us something that's private and that's personal to him. We're going to see how Hezekiah struggles to maintain this elusiveness of peace, of shalom. So pick up with me in verse 1, the first phrase, in those days. So here we must stop and answer the question, in what days? In those days? What days is that? Well, that's the days where King Hezekiah ruled. He was 25 years old. He took over the nation of Judah as their king at only 25. What kind of man was Hezekiah? Well, first, Second Chronicles tells us that. Second Chronicles 2, 29, 2 tells us he was what? And Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. See, he was a man of what we call piety. We don't use that word much anymore in contemporary language, but that piety means something. See, piety means devotion. Piety means he was devoted to God. And later on, Second Corinthians tells us he held fast to God. He wanted to please God. He did what was right by God. He held fast to him. He loved God. His desire was to please God. He was a man of piety. And see, piety is where we find shalom. See, in our piety, in our devotion to the Lord, that's where we find shalom. Shalom's always found in a person. Our peace is always found in a person. And so see, at 25 years old, for some reason, Hezekiah, by God's gracious gift to him, grants him the gift of shalom. Because Hezekiah's father didn't have shalom. Didn't want to have shalom. Matter of fact, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So in this context, Hezekiah changes his whole family trajectory, spiritually speaking. So he's a man of piety. He did what was right. Augustine of Hippo says this, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless inside of us until they find their rest in you. And so we see his piety lived out in two ways, privately and publicly. We see Hezekiah lived out in two ways, privately and publicly. Number one, privately. Back in 2 Chronicles like 31, it says he sought the Lord. He sought the Lord with all of his heart. And sometimes words can be so familiar, we just skip over them. But sought the Lord, I mean, he made it a daily habit. He made it a pattern. What he did in private. See, when no one was looking, where was Hezekiah? When there was no one to impress, what was he doing? It tells you. He was seeking the Lord. There was no one there. No one would have known. But God knows. And the man was seeking the Lord when no one was watching. That's where your character is shaped. When no one's watching. In that crucible of time, in that private devotion, he genuinely sought the Lord. With all his heart. In the Hebrew meaning of heart, it's your feelings, it's your thinking, and it's your actions. See, what we try to do, we try to compartmentalize our hearts. That's not how we're wired. It's a holistic approach. It's how we think, how we feel, and how we act. And those categories are fluid when it comes to biblical change. And Hezekiah did that. He sought the Lord, and then he engaged every part of his being. He held nothing apart from God. He was totally vulnerable. 
and shared it all with God. Held nothing back. See, the private life filled his, his public life. His private devotion filled what he did in public. See, a lot of times we get it backwards. We get it backwards. We're trying to impress and do things publicly. We haven't done the hard work privately first. See, Hezekiah got that. And before he cuts down the idols, before he cleans the temple, before he celebrates Passover, he gets right with God. He allows it to himself to overflow versus overwork. And that's the beauty of Hezekiah. In public, he's the same as he is in private. And we all go, thank God somebody's like that. See, that's why he had peace, because he was the same person. In public persona, private persona, he was the same. And so God does something unusual. He doesn't have to do this, but he grants Hezekiah prosperity. See, true piety is when we experience shalom, right? True piety is where we experience shalom and that piety and what we're made for. Now what God's going to graciously do, he's going to bless them. Now here's, the, here's the, the catch. In the ideal world, we stay in piety pretty good until we experience this, don't we? We stay pretty good in, in the ideal of shalom and peace, but then somehow when we get prosperity in the next stage, it shifts. And throughout the narrative of Hezekiah, it says the Lord made him prosper. He did right upon the Lord, and the Lord blessed him. The Lord prospered him. See the subject? The Lord. The Lord did this for Hezekiah. He don't have to. Even the prophet Isaiah knew that because his own life was a testament of that. Jeremiah knew that. They were faithful prophets, but yet they didn't prosper. They didn't prosper with material things. But God looks down on Hezekiah, and for whatever reason, he prospers him. He prospers him in three ways. He gives him power, he gives him prestige, and he gives him possessions. Number one, power. See, Hezekiah is the king. That means he has full authority to do as he please. His decrees happen. He speaks, it happens. So God put him in this unique position of power to speak, to influence change amongst the nation, to lead the people. He's at the pinnacle, the apex of the organizational chart. He doesn't report to anyone but God alone. Prestige. God granted Hezekiah prestige by his title. When he walked into the room, people knew that's the king. And they acted differently. They treated him differently. And you and I can relate. When people at our work or whoever we honor, whoever we value, vice presidents, presidents, CEOs, CFOs, however your work is structured, whatever you value, when that person comes in that room, that title you value, there's a prestige to that. Hezekiah had that. He had prestige. Possessions. Hezekiah did not lack for anything. He had silver. He had gold. He had cattle. He had wheat. He had anything he wanted. He had it. He did not lack for any treasure at all. 
and he accumulated it all. And you can see where we're headed. Piety, prosperity, and then just as we're in a season where God is blessing us, God has been good to us, God has been kind to us, he's shown his favor to us, even though biblically speaking, we know he doesn't have to. Right in that moment, he shows favor to us. We're vulnerable. Our minds shift, our mindset begins to shift. And we start thinking, God needs me more than I need God. At that moment of success, to ourselves, we start thinking, isn't God blessed to have me on his team? Look how gifted I am. Look how skilled I am. Why wouldn't he bless me? But we don't say that verbally because that sounds arrogant. <laughs> but we think that in our heads. Can we begin to see Hezekiah thought that? Second Chronicles 32, 25, we find this statement. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. His heart was proud. See, the conjunction but jumps off the page, and that's his heart. His heart was proud. And so what's happened to Hezekiah over time is a spirit of entitlement was growing. And the root of entitlement is always pride. Instead of a spirit of gratitude, a spirit of humility, it began to grow. And God and Hezekiah began to take the goodness for God, stay with me, the goodness for God, like we do for what? For granted. See, God's being good, and I take that for granted, and then I grow complacent. See the, the logical digression? As soon as I take God's goodness for granted, I get prideful, I get arrogant, and then I grow complacent. And then, like rock, we lose the what? The hunger. Just like Mickey, rock, you ain't been hungry in years. He's not talking about food. You haven't been hungry in years. And just we think to ourselves, we have arrived at for whatever that means to you. Maybe you're at a job and you got a promotion. Or you're getting paid more money now than you ever thought you'd make in your lifetime. Or maybe you got more education than any of your family members ever have. God's been so kind to you that he's given you gifts like those gifts. Or spiritually speaking, you've been struggling with something, you're finally getting some traction in it. You're finally getting some traction. You're finally growing. You're seeing some victory, some small victory in your life. See, sometimes as we get healthier spiritually, we forget what it's like to be lost. We forget what it's like to be hurting. And we keep playing these spiritual games and, and no one's grading how we're performing. No one cares because Shalom just cares about you and your heart. And what happens so easily is the kid from the small town of North Carolina who was granted by God's grace an opportunity to leave the small town, who was granted an opportunity to receive degrees that his parents didn't have. His mom didn't go to college, but he went to college. 
His mom had failed marriages over and over again, but he's now a husband. He's trying to lead his family well and love his wife well and love his kids well and stay in the midst of that. That small kid can become arrogant. He can forget the grace of God that was done to him back then and watching his family implode from ages of four and watching the grenades go off literally. And now you get healthy spiritually and you think, oh, you've arrived because you've got some degree on your wall. Are you having a little bit of success in life? No, no, no. And that's what moved me emotionally when I was studying this. See, pride is so seductive. And it happens spiritually speaking, not just materially. It can happen to our church, the people in our church. We forget what it's like to be lost. We forget what it's like, and somehow we are condescending and demeaning. What in the world? God, how gracious has been to us. And then we're on the treadmill. And so in times of success, we have to be aware of our motives, because a lot of times we can go real easy into autonomy. I mean, it's just basically, I do what I want to do. You know why I do it? Because what I do, that's who I am. Do you not know who I am? <laughs> I do what I want to do. I've already paid my dudes. This is who I am. Autonomy. Self-sufficiency. Somehow we believe this thing. I got everything in me to, to do what, how I want to be. I'm self-sufficient, really? I've got all the natural gifting and skill set to do what I want to do, to accomplish what I want to accomplish. And it's just so pervasive and persuasive. And I thought about my own self. I'm not proud of this, but I'll tell you, I'm smart enough, I'm talented enough, I'm gifted enough, I'm persuasive enough, I'm charming enough. I like people. I'm a people person. <laughs> what more? I, I'm a good guy. And peace begins to slowly erode from a guy that prides himself in being a good guy. Listen to Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for this theirs will be the kingdom. Listen to uh, David. As deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Longs for you. Jesus, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be what? Open. James, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Paul, I count all things lost, but knowing shalom. I count all things rubbish, but now I know shalom. That's all I need. And I have to ask myself the question. It's like Mickey. You ain't been hungry in years, Chad. Are you hungry? Are you drawing? Are you seeking? Are you thirsty? Are you alive? And so it goes in in Hezekiah 38, right after that phrase, in those days, he's going to grab Hezekiah's attention. And typically, crises come when life's going pretty well, life's at their best. And they often catch us off guard. Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death 
And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord of God, Set your house in order, for today you shall surely die, and you will not recover. In Hezekiah 39, I'm not a great mathematician, but if he was on the throne at 25, and now he's 39, I believe that's 14 from my small town education. So see how this pride gradually, he sought the Lord, Lord blessed him. 14 years have elapsed, 14 years, and God comes to him. Isaiah comes to him through God, obviously, and says, you're going to die. Famous, righteous kings don't just die for no reason. That's not how it works in the Bible. They don't just die for no reason. The Lord is desiring to bring Hezekiah back to Shalom. He's desiring to bring him back and he's going to use a universal method that he still uses today. And you know what it's called? Mr. T told you. It's called pain. And nobody likes it, but that's what it's called. All the gold chains, if you remember correctly, the AT, Mr. T, guns blazing, pain. That's what he's going to use. He will get your attention to bring you back to Shalom. And he points to Hezekiah, he points to what? His mortality. He says, pain reveals our humanity and our need for the divine. It counters, we're not autonomous. We're not self-sufficient. We, really we really do need the divine. And then Hezekiah responds like this. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to God. And he said, please, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and how I've done what is good in your sight. And he wept bitterly. See, Hezekiah, when he's confronted with his own mortality, his possessions, his power, and his prestige cannot save him. When he's faced with his pain, when he's faced with mortality, he's run to those things. Power, money, prestige, whatever. And it cannot save him. It cannot deliver what he hopes it delivers him and what he desires at most. He wants all those things, those power, those prestige, those possessions to give him shalom, to give him peace. So he lays his head down on the pillow at night. He can sleep. He can rest. But he has no peace. But thankfully, God is so gracious in the story. God is so gracious. What God does is, did you see what he does later on in verses uh, four through six? I'll summarize it. But God saves his life. God grants him a reprieve for 15 years. Is that Hezekiah? 15 years. And there's a correlation. He's going to give Judah 15 years before captivity, and he's going to give Hezekiah 15 years. So in the graces of God, when Hezekiah doesn't even deserve it, God gives him grace. And people argue that New Testament, the Old Testament has no grace. <laughs> people argue that God's kind of a, a bully, a cosmic bully, just being angry and mad all the time. I think that's grace. He saved his life. 
So this is how pain works. It grabs our attention. And we're confronted with that. We, sadly enough, don't go back to Shalom, do we? We go to other things. TV watching, comfort food, shopping, excessive working out. Whatever is good for my senses, I run to it. Touch, taste, smell, sight, hear, that's where I'm going to go. See, pain is meant to make you go somewhere, but sadly enough, we don't go to Shalom. So can I ask you, how do you respond to pain? Escape, numb it, rationalize it? Well, let's look at the good news. In verses 10 through 20, it's going to be a reflective song, Hezekiah, a psalm that Hezekiah is going to write about his recovery and what God has taught him. You see, right in the midst of what Hezekiah is learning in his pain, God is doing something. God's always doing something in the midst of our pain. And right where we want to go, to pleasure. I think what God's saying is, I'm more pleasurable. I think what God is saying is, I'm more pleasurable than anything else you can run to. The food, the drink, whatever you want to put in there, blank. I think what God's saying is because of the pleasure I have, who I am, I can give you peace because I'm more pleasurable than all that. And that's the good news, isn't it? 38, 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Behold, it was for my welfare. The Hebrew word there for welfare is, you probably guessed it by now. Shalom. Shalom. It's peace. See, God had a plan. It wasn't just random. When it hit the fan for Hezekiah, he had a plan for Hezekiah. He wanted to run to shalom. He wanted to run to peace. All things work to the good of those who love him. 2 Corinthians says this, For we are utterly burdened beyond our strength <laughs> that we despaired of life itself. That means one to quit, one to give up. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, Hezekiah. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on shalom. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, on shalom. See, shalom's not found in the blessing God gives us. Shalom's found in the person. So this morning, can I encourage you? Because I know life hurts. I know life is hard. Let the pain do its work. Let the pain do its work. Because I promise you, if you let the pain do its work, you're going to find shalom. 
Because when you seek, he's going to answer. And when you knock, the door's going to be open. If you let it do its work, shalom will always arrive. So let's just end there, right? But no, oh, Hezekiah, you got to love him. He's just like you and I. <laughs> right, right when you think Hezekiah's got it. He's got shalom. He's good. He loses it. Right when he had it. He had it right in his hands. He's experienced it. He'd been sick. God gracious. God heals him. And then he's, he loses it. See, it's not a one-time transaction. Just like King Hezekiah, you and I can lose it. 39, Babylon comes in. And they've heard how Hezekiah has now, he's healthy, he's recovered. And they just want to celebrate. They just want to encourage the king. <laughs> and so they come with letters and gifts. And what does good old Hezekiah do? Let's just read it. Hezekiah 39 2. And Hezekiah, he welcomed them gladly, and he showed them <laughs> all his treasure the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oils, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouse. There was nothing, there was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show him, show them. So he has peace. The Babylonians come in. Historically speaking, Hezekiah wants to, be a, he wants to be a player on the scene. See, what happened is he wants to, this is Babylon. It's Assyria. We're just little old Judah. We're not big and mighty like they are, those armies are. So when Babylon comes in, Hezekiah feels a couple things. He feels fear, and then he feels like, you know what? I'm going to impress these guys. Out of my fear, I'm going to show these guys all I have. And so when the Babylonians come in, instead of Hezekiah saying, no. Because what they're going to try to do is form an alliance. It's the same game, over and over again. History is, repeats itself over and over and over again. And Hezekiah, instead of pausing, thinking, running to the Lord, run the other people. He lets them in. He shows them everything. And how tragic. Because in a couple of years, guess what they're going to do is return. They're going to take all that gold and all that silver and all that spice and they're going to take it where? To Babylon. When we place our peace in anything besides God, it will eventually destroy us. It will destroy us and it will kill us. Verse 8, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be no peace, no security in my days. That's, that's hard to understand and interpret a little bit. Could be taken a couple ways. But what I would like to think with Hezekiah now 
as the narrative keeps unfolding, he's losing peace, he's gaining peace. I think what he's trying to articulate here is, no matter the circumstances in my life, no matter what's happening in my life, I can still have peace in my days because of the person. But peace has to be intentionally, please catch that word, intentionally guarded. We have to guard peace because Babylon is coming in your life. It might not look like a nation, but it's coming to take your peace. And you've got to guard your peace. You've got to guard it. It's precious. Don't let it slip away. Proverbs 4.23 says like this, Keep your heart for all vigilance, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Keep your heart. Guard it. Peter Marshall, who was a U.S. chaplain to the Senate back in the 30s, he also was a Presbyterian pastor. He illustrates this point well tells a story about the keeper of the springs. This guy was kind of a nomad. The keeper of the spring was. He lived up in the woods. Nobody saw him or talked to him. But the spring ran up and it shot up and it would, it would collide with this river. Well, this river ran through the city. And the people back then, obviously, the livelihood is through the rivers, through the stream. And so the city got together and they started realizing, man, we got some great clean water. To come to find out, the keeper of the spring, he's up there taking the mud, the gook, the algae, all the stuff. He's cleaning it, making sure it's clean so when the spring runs into the river, they can have clean access. It's delightful water. Tastes good. Doesn't make you sick. Well, the city has a smart idea that we don't really need that nomad anyway. He's kind of a weird dude. Lives up in the forest, up in the wood. He's kind of ornery and weird. We don't need that guy. We'll just take him off a payroll because when I pay him, couple hundred bucks a month anyway. We don't need that. We've arrived. So the stream kept bubbling up. Stream kept running into the river. River kept going through the town. A couple weeks later, guess what happens? Algae, mold, fungus is all in the water. The people are getting sick. The people are dying. The town council comes again and says, we got to find the keeper of the spring. They find the keeper of the spring. He graciously goes back to work, clean the spring, and guess what? A couple days later, guess what's coming down? Pristine, clean water flowing down. And the people are drinking it. And now they are, instead of dying, they are what? Thriving. So can I encourage you? Keep your heart Guard your heart. It's precious. It's precious. Be the keeper of the springs of your own heart. Amen.